therapy balls. Like, I cannot get my voice to project that loudly and still have a voice at the end of the day. So here we are. Um, my name is Alyssa Baker. As I mentioned, I am an occupational therapist. So I'm not actually a teacher, although I have to say that with a little asterisk because I teach at Western Michigan University. So I did not start out to be a teacher, even though um, I distinctly remember my dad telling me, you're going to be a teacher. And I said, no. Uh, and now here I am teaching at a graduate level. So I teach occupational therapy students um, who are pursuing their doctorate in occupational therapy. So I really like teaching, I found, um, and I combined a little bit naturally. My mom is a second grade teacher at Byron Center Christian. Her name is Jill Batches. My mother-in-law is also a teacher, also at Byron Center Christian. I have a sister who teaches at Hudsonville Christian, and I also have some extended cousins who teach down at the Mont Christian. So I've got a lot of connections to you all. I grew up going to Byron Center Christian, graduated from South Christian in 2007, and now here I am. So my job today is to teach you about sensory issues. As an occupational therapist working in a pediatric setting, this was my bread and butter. This is what I love to get to do with my kids, is to help them be more successful in their day-to-day -day life. And so I'm transitioning this and hopefully going to give you some strategies to make your students more successful with their day-to-day -day participation in the classroom. So for those of you who aren't familiar with occupational therapy, feel like I need to give a little plug for my profession. Occupational therapists work with people across the lifespan. So you'll find them in NICUs and you'll also find them in skilled nursing and like adult living facilities uh, and inpatient rehab in the hospitals. You'll also see them in school systems. Although most of you working in Christian schools have less access to them than your public school counterparts. Um, you'll also find us in outpatient clinics, private, hospital based, all over. We, our goal is to get people back to doing their occupations, which isn't work, it's actually their day-to-day -day life. So we call them your activities of daily living or the jobs, we talk about like building skills for the job of living. We want kids, right, to be able to play, to learn, to go to school. We want adults to, yes, sometimes go back to work, but we also want them after a stroke to be able to bathe themselves, to be able to cook again, to figure out new ways or relearn ways to get back to their day-to-day -day tasks that are meaningful and important. So that's my approach and how I approach looking at students is what do students need to be successful in the classroom to participate in that job of attending school and learning and becoming a good, a good human. So that's my intro. Um, if you want, I have a pretty wide variety of handouts. I didn't want to print, print all of them, but I do have a Google Drive set up. So it has the slides that you're seeing here in a PDF and PowerPoint presentation. There's also a like number of sensory diets, sensory activities, su suggestions. If you're not technologically savvy and you don't want to use the QR code, you're also welcome to email me and I will email you the link later to that Google Drive. So my, my email is baker6ar at gmail.com. And maybe put like CEA convention so I know to look for you. I have to say, when I was preparing for this, I told my husband, I was like, look what I made. Like, I've never done this before. Uh, so I'm feeling pretty proud of this technology that I have not yet mastered. Because uh, at first I was like, the Google Drive links are just absurd, right? And I was like, what do I do with this? <laughs> Turns out you can put a little link into a QR generator and then make an image for you if you haven't done that. It was easier than I expected. 
you apply your own expertise to your own students. Um, I, and I, although I did do some school-based practice as part of my schooling and my internships, I worked in a school base, in a school for about three months under like the supervision, much like your student teaching um, over in Lansing. So I have at least a few touch points of what OT in schools can look like. I also know that that's very different for all of you because you're not going to be accessing usually direct OT services. You're going to be the primary implementers or um, instigators using these strategies yourself. And then another thing that I really need to make clear, and I hope that you recognize, is that sensory strategies are not going to be a one-size-fits-all. So I like to use the analogy of a toolbox. We all, not all of us, some of us, most of us probably have a toolbox down in our basement, and that toolbox has a variety of tools because each home improvement project has its own issues and challenges. You can't use the same tool for every project. It won't be successful. Sensory strategies are similar. You need to have a whole set of tools in your toolbox because each student is going to need different sensory strategies based on their own personal preferences, their own nervous system, their own needs. The other thing about that is if you have a student who has very high or very challenging needs, I can't like give this presentation without saying, get an OT evaluation. I don't know the correct method to do that as a therapist or as a parent, not a parent, as a teacher. But if there's a way that you can somehow guide parents to seek out an external OT evaluation for those kids with really high needs, we're really, like, in OT, there's a really big push to make sure that when we're providing sensory-based interventions, that we're coming at it from a holistic lens and that we've got a full picture of the student. So most of the strategies I'm giving you today are kind of under that idea of universal design for learning. What are strategies that we can use for a wide variety of populations not necessarily a specific strategy for a specific student or a specific need. If there's like really specific students in mind, this is your plug to try to figure out how to connect with an OT, either someone you know or something else. So those are my kind of quick disclosures that I wanted to make. Alright, with that being said, I structured this presentation with the hopes that at the end of it you will be able to define the three major sensory systems of the body, Describe the four patterns of sensory responsivity, differentiate between types of sensory strategies, and then ultimately create some sort of go-to list of sensory strategies. Transitioning into the presentation, I want to try to support your readiness to participate, because we all know that teachers make the worst students. <laughs> you are all used to talking nonstop and having the full attention on you. And I have found when I present to teachers, they get really bored really fast. <laughs> Okay, so to try to help get you guys ready for this space, we're going to do a short mindful, mindfulness activity. This activity is called the bell listening exercise. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and sit silently. I'm going to ring a bell, and I would like you to listen closely to the vibration of the ringing sound. Raise your hand quietly when you can no longer hear the sound of the bell. We'll continue to sit in silence for a minute, and I want you to turn your attention to other sounds you hear once the ringing has stopped. Alright, go ahead and open your eyes.
think about what sounds did you notice during that minute that you didn't notice before? Did you notice any other sensations of your body? Hopefully to some extent that activity contributed to awareness of your senses and sensory processing. Sensory processing is a complex ability. It involves receiving information through your senses, think your ears, your tongue, your eyes, your skin, sending this information to your brain, where it's then directed to a specific part of the brain based on the type of input it is, and then you still have to connect it to your knowledge, your memories, your experiences to make meaning of it, and then you still have to figure out how to use that to guide your behavior, your response, your movement, and your, to guide your learning. My like, I have a lot of soapboxes and music cups saying that, but one of the key things I want you to take away is that we are all sensory beings. We all need sensory information to be human beings. However, some of us process sensory information more efficiently or less efficiently than others. Another important aspect to know about sensory processing is that it, it occurs both consciously and non-consciously. There are aspects of sensory processing that we cannot control. There's actually a part of your brain called the reticular formation that's located in your brainstem that it acts as a filter. And it, every piece of incoming sensory information, except for smell, goes through your brainstem and goes through that reticular formation. And that reticular formation plays a really important role in deciding if you're going to attend to that piece of information or ignore it. And that's nothing you can do to control. So recognize that many of your students don't have control over what's distracting them or what's bothering them. It's how their brain is wired, and we need to figure out how to add in support to help them refocus or right, retrain, use the idea of neuroplasticity and changing and shaping the brain to help better respond or respond more appropriately to those inputs. So another important term for this presentation is self-regulation. Self-regulation is also a process and a complex ability. Specifically, I consider self-regulation to be the ability of a person to adjust their arousal level to meet the needs of a task or situation. It requires the ability to block out irrelevant stimuli, control impulses, and persist or right, stay focused on a task, which means that sensory processing is a foundational skill or ability that predictates self-regulation. Many of you are familiar with self-regulation, especially because you see the like ill effects of not having enough of it. So as many of you realize and know, self-regulation is not an isolated skill. It's a complex, complicated process, and it actually needs to be taught to students. And research suggests that self-regulation is learned best by modeling, which means you, as the adult, need to model and have students watch and respond to your ability to self-regulate. Sometimes this means voicing or describing your own emotions or describing how you're feeling and what strategies you're using. And by modeling those, you can improve your students' skills and self-regulation. We also know that self-regulation develops and matures gradually through childhood. So if you think of an infant, they are completely dependent to self-regulate. They cry, and we as the caretaker feed them and bathe them. We rock them and we swallow them. We give them something to suck on. We right, give them sensory input to meet their needs and help them self-regulate. Now that you know, infant turns into a crazy two-year-old toddler, and in the good moments, they can self-regulate. We can say, oh, you know, you're looking a little tired. Why don't you go lay down? And they can go find their favorite snuggie, stuffed animal, blinky, passy, and they can go lay down and, you know, soothe themselves. In their worst moments, they're still dependent, and we're still carrying, a, you know, 
three-year-old child kicking and screaming from the playground because they didn't want to leave. Don't ask me how I know. Um, and, you know, and then ultimately we have found that usually by the age of five or six, most kids are relatively independent. Obviously their ability to self-regulate still grows. We all as adults still have issues with that. But for, by the age of six, right, entering school, most kids are mostly independent. Um, an article I read by Flores actually uses a thermostat analogy, which I really like. It's the idea that, right, the thermostat needs to monitor the temperature of an environment, compare that temperature to a preset threshold, and then turn the system on or off to meet that threshold, right? They need to adjust based on what they found and what the threshold is. Similarly, students need to learn to monitor their environment or their experiences, compare this information, right? Compare what they see, what they know, what they touch, to what they already know, and then use that information to choose and carry out a response. Both of these processes, the thermostat and self-regulation, are intentional and active. All right, so let's dive in. Our bodies have eight senses. These include five external senses, touch, taste, sight, hearing, and smell. We consider these your external senses because the receptors are found on the external or outside of your body. We can all see our tongues, our ears, our eyeballs. We also have three internal senses, and these tell us about the internal state of our body, whether or not our body is feeling sluggish, we're hungry, we have to go to the bathroom, we're thirsty, uh, whether or not our muscles are tired or like tense or relaxed. Those are all our internal senses, and these include interoception, proprioception, and vestibular. Thinking about sensory strategies, you're going to get the most bang for your buck when you apply strategies that include tactile, proprioceptive, and vestibular systems. These are considered your major sensory systems. And they're considered that because they play a really vital role in the development of motor skills and body awareness. Differences in these systems, or poor development of these systems, can affect arousal, alertness, and behavior. Your tactile system has receptors all throughout your skin. These respond to pressure, vibration, movement, temperature, and pain. This incoming information contributes to an awareness of our body boundaries, our motor planning and coordination, knowledge of our environment, and development of the brain, especially in infancy and young childhood. They need that physical touch to stimulate development of the brain. The most sensitive areas of the body, and they're the most sensitive because they have the highest density of receptors, are the palms of your hands, your mouth and face, the surface of your belly, and your upper chest. Our proprioceptive system is located in our muscles, tendons, and joints. These receptors respond to heavy work. So when we lift up something heavy and contract our muscles, um, when there's tension on our muscles, on our tendons, when we get our joint to like the end of its range of motion, it activates these receptors to tell us about where our body is in space. So it helps us have this mental map of how big our body is, how much space it takes up, how it's moving, in order to help coordinate movement, motor planning, and also create kind of this physical sense of self. Um, it's particularly important for tasks that require automatic or non-conscious body awareness, like handwriting, riding a bike, or driving a car. Think about driving a car. You can't actually see your foot, yet you know how hard you're pressing on the gas pedal or you can also switch automatically from the gas to the brake without having to see. You have a mental map of where your body is in space, 
how your body is moving, and you automatically use that information to guide your motor, your motor movements. Right? It's the same idea that I can close my eyes and touch my nose, which is a pretty small portion of my face. I have a mental map of my body that helps keep me grounded and helps me behave appropriately. Finally, we have our vestibular system. Our vestibular system is located in your inner ear. So it's called the vestibular apparatus. It has two sets of organs. Both of these organs are filled with fluid. And so gravity pulls on the fluid, pulls it down, right? So when our head and our body moves, the fluid moves in response because gravity is still pulling on that fluid. So it's adjusting to always stay towards the bottom. That in turn provides our bodies with information about the direction and speed of our movement, uh, about our sense of balance, about how we're moving in space, our body position, coordination, and it also plays a really important role in vision. So think about if I were to take my phone and walk around and record a video. When I play the video back, everything would be kind of bouncy, right? Do you remember that with like the old VHS camcorders? <laughs> like if grandpa was like moving around, it's like, oh. Yeah, why is it that when I walk around normally, the whole world isn't bouncing? We actually have a reflex that integrates the vestibular information from our movement with movement of our eyes. So our body is automatically adjusting movements of our eyes so that when we walk, everything feels stable. That's why like, if you have vestibular issues, you feel this like sense of vertigo. It feels like the whole world is spinning because that input isn't matching up with your vision. So your vestibular system plays a really important role with speech and language, vision, bilateral skills, body awareness. So hopefully you can see why these three, we consider the major sensory systems. They play a really significant role in our behavior and our movement. Okay, so let's pause and check in. I've been going for about 15 minutes, so I'm probably at the end of your attention span. <laughs> Is your attention here in this presentation, or was your mind starting to wander? If so, where did your attention go? Obviously, a little mind-wandering is totally normal and healthy, but remember that you're adults, you do have control over your mind. You can catch your wandering brain and gently guide it back to the present. So, briefly notice what your mind is doing and remember that you can choose where to direct your attention. So now is a good time, if you haven't already, to fill out the sensory motor preferences handout. I gave you two handouts. One of them is one that I've just found to be beneficial when I go to big conferences. I find it taking all this information and then I leave and I have no idea what I'm going to do because I took it so much and now I can't focus on it. So that's the like, wow, that's a good idea, right? You can take that through and kind of keep notes of one or two things you want to do from each session and now you've got a plan going into your classroom on Monday. The other one is a sensory motor preferences checklist for adults. And I the goal of this is to help bring to your attention or to your awareness that you also have sensory preferences. And these dictate how you run your classroom, how you expect your students to behave, how you start to feel when your students get really rowdy. Some of you might like thrive, and you're like, yeah, yeah, we're having a great time. Other of you are going to go cower in the corner because it is loud and you are overwhelmed. Right? Your sensory needs are going to influence what you expect of your students and also how you manage your classroom or how you set up your classroom. So think about that. You need to be aware of your own sensory preferences in order to either check them at the door so you can meet the needs of your students or make your own adjustments. So you should know what type of sensory input are comforting to you. What type tends to be really bothersome? 
How do you use sensory input to self-regulate yourself? What types? Do you prefer to have something to chew on or swallow? I used to, before I presented a more frequently, use like a hand fidget when I was standing, or I don't have it now, oh, because I put it in my hair. Like I'd always have a ponytail on my wrist, and I like fidget with the ponytail, right? I have these little mechanisms that I use to help myself calm down. Um, how often, you know, to what intensity, for how long? I said it again, and it bears repeating because, right, this is really important. We are all sensory beings. Um, it's not just your students who need sensory strategies. However, because they are younger, their nervous systems are less mature. So while you as an adult can often use sensory strategies in a subtle, small way, your students with their less mature nervous systems are likely going to need those same strategies in a much larger, much more intense way. And you have to right, have that perspective because otherwise you're not gonna be able to meet their needs or you're gonna get frustrated when it's not working. I think you've picked up on the fact that I think sensory is really important. And in fact, OTs around the world think sensory is so important, we've created a pyramid all about sensory. <laughs> uh, so this pyramid of learning is designed to put an emphasis on the fact that our nervous system and our sensory processing is at the foundation of everything we do. It sets the foundation for our motor skills, our you know, visual coordination, um, our language skills, and ultimately it's going to impact our academic learning and our behavior. So this is the, these authors, Williams and Schellenberg, are the authors of the ALERT program, or How Does Your Engine Run? Are any of you familiar with that? Just one? Oh man, okay, two, yeah. <laughs> I'll show it to you later. All right, so sensory challenges. In my day, I have seen a wide variety of sensory challenges, and I'm guessing you have seen an even wider variety than I have. But some specific things that can identify like, hey, this isn't quite right, something's off here, uh, would be a child who has very poor balance or very poor motor coordination. And this would be like unexplained, right? There's not another explanation. Then maybe you might start thinking about, oh, maybe there's something sensory going on. So they might have unexplained language delays or academic achievement. Kind of the easier ones to identify are the students who are really impulsive, really distractible, really, like they get easily frustrated. These students can also have difficulty with transitions and they can also have difficulty with social behavior, right? If you don't have a good awareness of your body, when you go to play tag, you might not just gently touch somebody, but you might push them over. You're probably not gonna make a lot of friends that way. Um, right, so there's a whole range of sensory challenges that we might see in our students. And the reason we have such a range is because there's a wide variety of ways that we respond to, that our bodies respond to sensory processing. So we have four patterns of sensory processing. This model is, um, was developed by Winnie Dunn, who's an occupational therapist, and it has two axes that divide us into four quadrants. So the first axis is this neurological threshold. So we find that students, or adults, individuals, either have a high neurological threshold or low sensitivity, hyposensitivity, hypo is low. I also will call these students my big gulps or my super big gulps or like a long fuse. They need a lot of input in order for that to register properly in their nervous system. They have a high threshold that needs to be met in order to respond appropriately or register that information. On the opposite end, we have a hypersensitivity or a low threshold, a little like short fuse or maybe your tiny shot glass. They get filled up real fast. 
The other access has to do with self-regulation. I told you this was an important term. So passive self-regulators tend to allow things to happen to them and then they react. You can see how this might be an issue if you have someone who's going to react quickly and very passively. They might just kind of sit there until all of a sudden they've had enough and then they explode. We also have our active self-regulators. They are seeking out or actively trying to find ways to meet their sensory needs. This is where you get those sensory seekers or sensory cravers who are constantly moving and they just can't seem to get enough. Right? They're actively trying to meet their need, but they also need a lot of it. So, sensory seekers. Let's dive into each of these quadrants briefly. Sensory seekers have a high threshold, so they need a lot of input, and they are active self-regulators. So these students tend to present with like body whirling, they love to crash, they can't get enough movement, touch, pressure, jump, they crave it. Sometimes we call these sensory cravers. They tend to have very high activity levels. They are likely to have a very high pain tolerance. Again, they can't, right? They have that high threshold. They don't register pain until it like is higher than most. Um, they tend to demonstrate risky or impulsive behavior, and they probably enjoy really loud sounds or music. For these students, we want to think about how can we add sensory value to their experiences? How can we involve more of their sensory systems so that they're getting more input during their day-to-day -day life? Not just during recess, but also during classroom activities, walking in the hallway, etc. One thing that I added, and I haven't done this in the past, but one thing I want to highlight is that all of these are our patterns. While they have their needs and their challenges, they also have strengths, right? All of our students have their unique strengths. These sensory seekers, while they can be hard to rein in, they are great at creating new play scenarios. They're great at coming up with creative, multimodal ways to present their work because they're trying to engage their whole body and their whole senses. Sensory avoiders have a low threshold, so they tend to respond to sensory input very quickly and they have active self-regulation. So this means that they tend to be overly sensitive to touch, movement, signs, and sounds, but they're likely to retreat. These are your students who are gonna find a quiet place in the room to hide out. They're gonna be on the far side of the playground away from all their classmates. They also tend to be pretty rule-bound, ritual-driven, and uncooperative. That's their active way to control what they can so that they're not overwhelmed by the sensory input around them. Because of this, we may find them that we may find that they may engage in inappropriate behaviors to try to control all their input. If they're really overstimulated by the fan, which right, this is a pretty loud fan, maybe this is the student who's like constantly humming to themselves in their seat. They're using their own noise to control or block out a noise that's bothersome to them. So usually these students are going to benefit from decreased sensory input. A strength is that they're pretty content to be on their own. They don't need a lot of hands-on guidance. They're just kind of hanging out along for the ride. They can kind of be a nice student to have in their classroom when you're not melting down because you can deal with your seekers and who are driving you crazy. All right, high sensitivity, or we nickname these the sensors. They have a low threshold, so they respond very quickly to sensory input, but they're also very passive. So these are the ones that we, like, type as being very sensitive to touch, movement, sight, and sounds, they're going to react very quickly and often without warning because they're going to be silently sitting there until they're overwhelmed and then you right, hit the peak and you can only go down, which is never fun for anybody. They tend to be very cautious. 
and are likely unwilling to take risks, and in general, they're just going to be uncomfortable in loud or busy environments. So these students, this is a little more counterintuitive, but they actually benefit from structured input during everyday tasks. They don't need less. They actually need specific controlled input, with the idea that by providing them controlled input that they can anticipate or expect, you're going to help desensitize their body and make them less responsive. So we're kind of using principles of neuroplasticity to help train their, their brain to respond differently and to respond less strongly to those same types of sensory input so that they can tolerate them and have better performance in the classroom. A strength of these students, they're going to have great attention to detail because they are noticing everything around them. So they um, have a very high level of awareness of their environment and great attention to detail. Finally, we have our bystanders or students who have low registration. So these students have a very high threshold. It takes a lot of sensory input to trigger their nervous system or for them to recognize that input, but they are also passive. So these are the students who tend to be very slow to respond. You need to say their name multiple times for them to hear you or respond. They seem to lack motivation sometimes, right? They might come across as a lazy student, but maybe they're just missing all of the cues that you're giving the rest of the class. They have a, usually have a poor ability to recognize or express their emotion, and they miss more cues from their environment than other students. So these students need increased intensity, right? These are the students you're going to put right in the front of your classroom so that you can make eye contact and make sure you have their attention before you give an instruction. Because otherwise it's going to go over their head. You're going to have to say their name again and again. Um, one benefit of these students is they have a great ability to maintain focus in distracting environments. They can carry on with whatever they want regardless of what's, you know, the tornado that's happening around them. All right, questions on those? I'm doing okay for time, so this is good, because I've only practiced this in chunks, so I have no idea how long it takes. And like any good teacher, I have way more content than I have time. <laughs> yes? I think you said this, I apologize. Can we share any of this in our school? Yeah, you are definitely welcome to share this. Thanks. Yeah? Um, one of the, the sensory avoiders one, I have a student who fits every single one except the Harley Cautious, because he's like, Barreling into things, but then it'll explode when it gets enough stimulus. When it's very noisy, immediately like shuts down and hides. Like it seems like it's fair to say like this model's not going to fit every student perfectly. Yes. Like, there's going to be exceptions, but like would you agree that like if most of the things are true except for one, like that's probably where that works. Yeah, that's a great caveat. Is not every student is going to fit neatly into a box. Um, so you're going to have to kind of use your best judgment to figure out what's going on. The other thing that gets really tricky is that students can actually be like sensory seekers for movement and sensory avoiders for like noise. So you can have different patterns for different sensations. Usually what I have found, especially working with kids with autism, if you have any of them in your classroom, is that students with autism tend to be very over-responsive or they get like, um, they need to avoid or their heightened sensitivity to your external senses. So anything that interacts with their body, noise, touch, taste, right, picky eaters, they tend to be very over-responsive, but they tend to be seekers or under-responsive to those internal senses. They need a lot more movement, a lot more deep pressure to really benefit. Yes? What's the biggest uh, indicator difference between ADD, ADHD, and sensory? Okay, so this is a great question. ADHD versus sensory processing. Um, I will comment on ADHD a little bit in some of my strategies. 
you'll see is the response. So a student with ADHD, when you give them a sensory strategy, unless it's perfectly fit, you have a higher chance that it's just going to be distracting because they're just going to find a new way to divert their attention. Whereas a child with a true sensory processing disorder is going to benefit much more from those sensory interventions. So it's ADHD, right, an issue with attention, whether it's they become hyper-focused hyper or they can't attend, sometimes it's right as a combination. Sensory processing is really this um, just difference in responding to their environment. Um, so at the neurological level, it's very different. It's hard to tell without like formal testing and really some of it is trial and error. Well, let me try this intervention. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll make things worse and then I'll move on. I don't have it. Is that answered enough? Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's dive into some specific sensory strategies. I've grouped these strategies into six different approaches that are meant to complement each other and be used together. So these strategies include how to integrate strategies across school settings, use of multi-sensory teaching, consideration of your classroom environment and classroom routines, suggested sensory tools, tips for home carryover, and then some specific manualized programs that you might find useful. And remember, it's okay for sensory input to be fun, and it's okay to ask for help, right? Use your um, experienced colleagues, your new colleagues, right? Everyone's got different education and different skills that they bring to the table. So collaborate, figure out how to do it together. So this slide is a reminder to think about that school is much more than your classroom. You can mostly control your classroom, but there are a lot of things outside your classroom that you can't control. And in general, most schools have become less sensory friendly. There are far fewer opportunities for outdoor time and active play. And this isn't just at school, right? This is also happening at home, which means students are likely getting less sensory input than they need. And instead of experiencing the world through their senses, through their bodies, they're experiencing it through a screen. So this is a prompt to consider how and when sensory strategies could be implemented across your school. How could you consider, right, building things into your hallways or gym time or lunchtime to either right, change the environment or add something in to help meet the needs of your students. Um, alternatively, you could also consider how might the needs of my students change after said experience, right? After gym, their bodies are gonna be moving and excited. How can you adjust your classroom strategies or routine to help calm them and refocus them? Or if you have a child who, right, buses are pretty challenging times for students. There's a lot of movement, there's a lot of noise, Especially if they don't have good like body control, they're not in their normal car seat for the younger ones, right? There's a lot of movement. Those can be really challenging times. So think about how you can prep or help de-escalate a student after their bus ride. So think about that, right? This has to incorporate many different school settings to be the most effective. Another thing, I kind of think this goes without saying, but whenever possible, avoid withholding recess. Children need to move in order to learn, and their brain needs a break. And that recess time can help meet their sensory needs. So, multi-sensory teaching. While research is actually quite inconclusive about whether or not teaching students in their preferred learning style, you don't know what I'm talking about, like the VARC, the visual auditory, um, I always forget what R is, uh, and kinesthetic, so there's actually like not a lot of evidence to say that like, oh, you're a visual learner, I need to teach you visually. 
But what we have found is that using multimodal or multi-sensory teaching is effective for all students. So the more ways you can present information, the more effective you will be for your students. So this is a great way to also meet some of the sensory needs of your students without having to invest in costly equipment or risk adding in distracting sensory tools to your classroom. So I actually found one interesting study that taught spelling words using shaving cream, pull apart Twizzlers, painting with a Q-tip, and Cheerios. Right? Easy to find activities, hands on, maybe they get to eat a snack afterwards. And guess what? Their spelling score was actually significantly increased as a result of this hands-on multimodal strategy. Right? And now you're adding in a kinesthetic, a visual, so many other ways to learn that material that are also meeting their sensory needs. So consider how you might be able to incorporate visual, auditory, tactile, or kinesthetic learning activities into your teaching. Uh, I particularly, I always have a hard time with kinesthetic ones, but like, maybe, especially because I teach graduate students and they're not always super excited, but maybe the, like, that will be easier for some of yours, right? Think about Bible lessons. I remember that as a kid, like marching around the wall of Jericho um, and singing, right? There's so many different ways that you can add in music, rhythm, add into that auditory beyond just talking that can help engage their senses and improve their learning. Um, so here's kind of some different strategies, right? Trying to meet those of you who are visual learners, give you some ideas. Do any of you use mind maps? Oh, some. This would be an older one. There's some really interesting like mind map software online. So if you have really visual learners, you can create these different mind maps where everything kind of branches off of each other to help make connections. All right, another great place to meet the needs of your students is through adjusting your classroom environment and routines. So this can include considering the physical attributes of your classroom. What is the noise and activity level? How much visual stimuli is there? Are there any smells? Trying to minimize those bothersome stimuli can improve your students' comfort and ability to attend and focus. So I actually found a study that installed sound-absorbing wall panels and replaced fluorescent lights with halogen lighting. And then they measured the response of four students with ADHD, and they found that these students, and they were like 13 to 20 year olds, um, these students significantly improved their attention, engagement, classroom performance, comfort, and mood, which is those simple changes. Uh, that may or may not be feasible for all of you, budgets are a thing, um, but you could consider adding in floor lamps or light, coloring, light coverings to decrease the harshness. Or maybe there are times in your day where you can turn the lights off altogether and just rely on natural light. Right, these are all simple changes you can make to your classroom environment to try to match the sensory needs of your students or guide them to find the right sensory input. Um, you can also support your students by creating clearly defined spaces. So using placement of furniture, rugs, or even brightly colored tape can help create boundaries so they know where they're supposed to be. And then you can also build sensory input into your daily routine through readiness exercises, um, movement to get supplies or between transitions, heavy work movement breaks, and then also just creating more predictability. Students are more likely to be able to hold in their sensory needs or adjust their behavior when they know they're getting a break soon. So if you can create that sense of predictability, you're more likely, right, you're going to increase the chances that they're going to be able to stay motivated to stay engaged during that sense of time. So classroom environment. Ideal classroom environment, about 20 to 50% of your wall space should be bare, right? Think about some, you know, classroom environments are very busy. We don't really want that. That's going to be very distracting. 
It's going to give them lots of things to look at. You do want, right, research shows it is beneficial to have student, um, student work on the walls and um, some things on the walls, but in general, you want to aim for a good amount of bare wall space, about half of the space, up to. Also, whenever you can use furniture or tape or carpet to create clear physical and visual boundaries can help um, identify what a specific space is for and improve the attention or the focus of students while they're in that space. Again, you can also consider lighting, noise level, and smells. And if possible, some of you may have big enough rooms where you can create a quiet space, kind of off in the corner, where students have a chance to go when they're feeling overwhelmed or they need to relax. Um, this is why I really like this idea if you've got a student who's constantly out of their seat and has seats that fully move. A lot of times we just need more boundaries, right? It's easy. I'm a big, like, I love visual input because visual things stick. You can't get rid of them. They're there. They're constant reminders. Versus I can tell you, like, you know, keep your chair here. You know, you're a goldfish. You're going to forget in 10 seconds. So if you give them something that sticks around and that's bright and easy to notice, you're going to increase your chances that they're going to keep their chair in that seat. Um, tennis balls can actually be helpful for reducing noise. If you've got really noise loud chairs, adding tennis balls to the bottom can help reduce that noise of the chairs as they go around. These, this is a light cover. They're fairly inexpensive. They can help just minimize some of the harshness of fluorescent lights. Um, and again, right, like a big open space. If this was a bunch of kindergartners, they would be all over, right? That's why we use carpet squares or tape can be a great way that's going to stay put and help give students those visual boundaries to help them stay focused. Readiness exercises are, you know, pretty simple things that can be done at their desk. Um, so home presses or the girl on the left, your, the goal is to be adding in some sort of proprioceptive input. So you're activating those muscles and joints by adding some pushing, pulling, or contraction. Um, so home presses, some of you might be familiar with brain gym. Brain gym is like you've got your hookups where you're trying to cross midline, just activate the brain, try to add in some organizing inputs. I like chair push-ups, although I'm really bad at them because I'm not very strong, but you like put your hands on your chair and try to lift your butt up from that seat while your feet are also off the ground. Um, and then you can also think about creative ways to do that as a transition. So you can do wall push-ups and create some fun visuals that students do as they enter your classroom or leave your classroom ways again to build it into your daily routine and structure without adding in extra things to manage right in your classroom like fidgets or other tools. Heavy work breaks um, might include right peer reading, lots of heavy things. During recess maybe you can encourage them to play tug of war or play on the monkey bars. Um, stacking chairs at the end of the day or unstacking chairs at the beginning of the day can give students some of that heavy work and um, what we find is that heavy work or that heavy proprioceptive input tends to be calming in general. It helps to, and really I like to use the term organizing more because it helps to bring students on either end of the spectrum to that just right arousal level. That like deep heavy work, it's hard to overdo it, right? Movement, it's easy to overdo movement and then they're just riled up. Heavy work, push, pull, carry, lift, hard to overdo, easy to help calm and organize the body. Um, washing windows or washing doors is another way where you can add in some resistance into a functional activity, kind of fun, structured, easy to incorporate. And then predictability, right, calendars, timers. I really love the sand timers. Learning Resources has some really cool one, two, five, and ten minute sand timers. Um, but also just you can put a timer on your whiteboard. 
Um, and then designated songs are also great ways to help children or students transition. Right? They don't have to be the cleanup song that we sing in preschool, but even at the fifth grade or high school level, you could have specific songs that designate an activity is coming to an end. I think we un underestimate the amount of the benefit from giving people a warning and like time to transition. I have had to use this at my, at my in my house when I like want my husband's attention and he's playing a video game. I can't just tell him, will you go up to the dishwasher? Because he's not going to do it because he's in the middle of something. Right? You have to wait until there's a natural point or, hey, when you're done with that, can you do this? And then you probably still have to follow up because we all get distracted. But transitions, cues for transitions um, can really help avoid some of those meltdowns when students know what to expect. We do have sensory tools, right? So after you've considered integration across school settings, multi-sensory teaching, classroom environments and routines, then maybe you want to start considering how could you add in sensory tools that can, your students can access during specific times of the day. Remember that while these can be enjoyable activities, they are meant to be tools, and so they can and should be taken away when they become a toy. Um, and you as a teacher know what that looks like. A pencil can be a great tool. <laughs> can also be a toy. Uh, so, uh, right? There's some more active teaching and instruction that needs to happen with specific sensory tools. So, these can be snacks, water bottles, um, sometimes Lycra or resistance band can add in some like uh, resistance while students are sitting at their desk, weighted lap pillows, fidgets, dynamic seating options, mindfulness activities, I've done a couple of those here, right? Trying to model some ways that you can help your students refocus, bring awareness to their body and to their senses. Um, with mindfulness activities, I have a couple documents that have body scans and scripts for pro progressive muscle relaxation. So those can be great ways to help calm the energy or organize, right? Increase students' awareness. A calming bottle or a mindful jar, and then also deep breathing. Um, so, Here's some of the like just pictures, right? Fidgets, you all know what those are. This is called a body sock. It's a piece of lycra that the kid can wear and they can like push up against it and they get to control the amount of input, right? They can stretch however far they want. The farther the stretch, the more it's gonna push back against them. Um, Theragand is a, you know, a similar idea where you can tie it around the leg of their chair and they can kick their leg up against it. It tends to be pretty quiet, but it's something that they can push their leg up against, especially if you have like a fidgety kid. Um, tea stools or other like wiggle seats up here can be helpful. I will say when I was researching this, uh, alternative seating is very inconclusive in the research, especially when you get into ADHD. In fact, more research that I found actually said, eh, probably not the best bet for kids with ADHD. It's just going to add to challenging behaviors and distraction. So, Again, it's that idea of a toolbox. You're going to have to figure out what the needs of your students are and tailor these strategies to your students. Um, same thing, weighted desks or weighted lap pads. They, there's some limited evidence that they're effective for kids with ADHD and sensory processing disorder. Uh, usually we aim for like 10% of a child's body weight. Uh, one thing to think about regardless of like method of seating, but proper body posture can go a long way. So students should have a 90-90-90, is what we say. They should be able to have their knees at 90 degrees, and their hips at 90 degrees, and their feet at 90 degrees. And that proper body alignment is going to help support their core, support them in an upright position, right? If they're sluggish, 
you've got noodly kids who need a lot of proprioceptive input, they get really tired. A lot more tired than we give them credit for for sitting in a chair. And so giving them a chair that has proper support or that is positioned correctly can help improve that. Um, or alternatively, sometimes when I worked with kids, like just laying on the ground, laying on your stomach and weight bearing through your elbows can add a lot of proprioceptive input and help improve focus. Um, here's some, these are more specific like mindfulness activities. So I found some really interesting ones, right? Mindful body scan, I really like body scans. Um, one way you can do to increase mindfulness is have students do jumping jacks. You have them like measure their heart rate or think about how fast their heart is beating before their jumping jack, then do jumping jacks and have them check their heart rate again. Trying to increase that awareness of what their body is feeling. Sometimes we carry around tension we don't realize that we're carrying and that's gonna change our behavior. Same is true for our students. Um, the bell ringing, right, is an example of one. Blowing bubbles, that like deep breathing. Um, so for deep breathing, you can do like a pinwheel, trying to get bubbles in a really long bubble. I really like the figure eight breathing, lazy eight, lazy eight. So you breathe in and then breathe out. Um, and then here's your calm down jar. You can talk about, right, how you shake it all up. You kind of let it watch and calm down. Sometimes our emotions get the same way. They get really like full and busy and we need to let them simmer. Uh, I liked this one because some kids are motivated by Spider-Man, um, but you can do like an activity for your spidey senses um, where you have like, you get students to try to write, think that they're like, they have their spidey senses on and they're trying to pay attention to what they see, what they taste, what they feel, what they hear, and again, have some of that mindfulness because mindfulness is actually, um, the research on mindfulness is really strong. That mindfulness improves learning, attention, focus, behavior, um, so incorporating these strategies are really easy. They're usually cheap, relatively quick, uh, or free, um, and they can be really beneficial for students. For those of you with older students, I actually came across one that I almost considered using, um, but it's the same idea as the bell, except for you give the bell to a student. And they get the power, like maybe once during a class, to ring the bell at any point, and you as a teacher have to stop. And the class gets a chance to breathe. And think about, right, process, relax, stand up and stretch. I think it's, you know, I'm doing this all to you now. You're getting tired, I can see it. But I'm like, I gotta power through, I gotta finish. Right, it gives the students a little bit of control to when they're feeling overwhelmed, when they're tired, to help get that sensory input that they need. <laughs> all right, so this is kind of a summary of some different techniques. So if you're thinking about what your students need, do they need to be more calm? Do they need to be more focused? Do they need to be more alert? I would probably choose some alerting activities for you all right now, because you've like had your snack, an hour later your blood sugar's crashing, and now you're really tired, and it's lunchtime. Yeah, okay. So calming techniques, in general, slow, rhythmic movement in a linear fashion. So a rocking chair, um, a gentle swing, can be calming, slow sustained heavy work or deep pressure, soothing smells like vanilla and lavender tend to be calming as does soothing music like Mozart, reducing the noise and light levels, and then sucking on hard candy or thick liquid through a straw, so like sucking on applesauce, gives a lot of deep pressure to your jaw which can help calm the body. Focusing or organizing techniques, um, again, sucking on hard candy or chewing gum can help organize and kind of bring the body, whether or not we're on right, high 
high alert, low alert, help bring us to that just right arousal level. Um, vibrating wiggle pins can sometimes help kids with their focus. And then again, those proprioceptive activities that involve pushing, pulling, or carrying objects. And then alerting techniques. So bright light, fresh, cool air tends to be more alerting, right? Honey, you've probably all like driven home way too late and you roll the windows down when it's really cold. Because um, otherwise you might fall asleep. Or like I would always drink cold water, sometimes that helps. Um, fast swinging, bouncing on a trampoline, sitting on a ball, standing while working, both tend to be alerting. Again, that's why sitting on a ball is not going to be perfect for every kid. For your kids who are already like high arousal, sitting on a ball is probably just going to make it better possible. Uh, drinking ice water, loud, fast music, peppermint is actually pretty alerting. And I actually heard once, my old supervisor told me that chewing peppermint gum while you study and then chewing peppermint gum again, that's a few, can help improve your memory. It's that like, that taste and that smell gets associated with what you're learning, and so when you chew it again, it can help um, your brain access that memory, that, you, that information you learned more quickly. Getting parent support, so you could consider um, giving sensory strategies for students to use during homework time, um, giving tip sheets for parents to give them more movement breaks at home, because if they're not getting what they need at home, now we're gonna have to meet it at school, and vice versa. Um, and then if you know that right parents have strategies that work for their kids or maybe have parents send them a specific snack that can help. Um, licorice, apple slices can be like good and crunchy, pretzels, um, carrots, things that are hard and crunchy tend to be helpful or really chewy like gum or like licorice twizzlers. I try to avoid really sugary stuff. And then a few specific programs that I'm familiar with and that I like. Um, so a couple of you have heard of the alert program or how does your engine run. This is a check-in system that students use where they decide, right, how is their body feeling? Am I feeling a little slow and sluggish like the turtle? Am I feeling just right or am I feeling a little too fast? And they can move it and then you can say, okay, if you're feeling too fast, what can you do to change that, to get yourself into that just right state for learning? I will say, I like the alert program. I like the zones of regulation a lot better. Uh, have any of you heard of this? Okay, do any of you use it? Okay, what I love about the zones of regulation is there's a lot of, A, there's a very specific curriculum. So there's like 12 modules that you can go through and teach, uh, and there's different activities that you can use with it. The other thing that I like about it is there's no right or wrong. It really emphasizes that it's okay to be in any zone. In fact. There are even times when we need to be in the red zone. If your dog gets run over or gets lost, you're probably going to be in the red zone, and that's okay. That meets that situation. If you're cheering at a football game, you're going to be in that red zone, right? You're going to be really excited and really loud. That's okay. That's the expectation. But when you're in the classroom, right, where you need to be is going to change. Um, and they have some great visuals. So I really like that one. It's published by an OT. You know, can't help but give a plug. Um, but I think she actually published it as part of her master's in education program. So she's like an OT teacher, so you can't go wrong. <laughs> um, another one that I really like is called Every Moment Counts. This is actually was developed by an OT who works in the schools and collaborated there in Ohio. And they have a whole website with different mindfulness and different activities and different programs. So they have like the comforting cafeteria, what are some of the other ones? They have like six different things that talk about um, how to support positive mental health 
one. And then this is a new one. I have not used this, but it sounds kind of interesting. They're called drive-through menus. And so they have different menus with different activities. Um, and this can be purchased on websites, but they have some different pictures and different ideas. And they're even structured for like calming, alerting, heavy work. So these, if you download the PowerPoint and click on the picture, it will take you to the website. So all those links are live in there. I put this in there thinking I wouldn't have time for it, and I don't really, but um, and we'll say, right, there's always this, is it sensory or is it behavior? And this is where you've got access to a school psychologist that can be really helpful to do some sort of ABC where you're trying to figure out what's going on. And I will say that sometimes behaviors exist for sensory needs. So sometimes it's both. Alright, so these references and resources, the bold ones are ones that are great resources for you guys in addition to being stuff I pulled from. And then there's a list of recommended websites if you want more information or supplies. So I have time for a couple of questions. No? Alright, I'll, uh, I'll hand it over to Mark then. Alright. Okay, well, so, uh, thank you.